as I looked at this passage, as I organized the scriptures for worship, see, one of the things I wanted to say is that pastors are not priests. What we read from the first chapter of Revelation reminds us that that we are a kingdom of priests. All of us can go into that most holy place now because of Jesus Christ. That we have that direct access. That's something that people had only heard about. When I read this passage and what you have in it through the articles in the holy place and the most holy place are the artifacts of redemptive history. The artifacts of what God did for the people of Israel. Now, when I go down to Presbytery, I'm taking a day, um, we're going to do some history things, but I'm going to go um, see something I've seen before. Um, I'm going to go see the Tutankhamun exhibit, King Tut, in London. Because I saw this exhibit in the Cairo Museum back in 1990, I guess it was. And see, the, the artifacts tell a story. We're going to learn about, I'm going to learn about, again, this, this king, this king that has captured the imagination throughout the centuries. But when you read this about the different parts, the different pieces of furniture in the holy place and the most holy place, they tell a redemptive story. But a story that was hidden in terms of the people going in because, you know, the most holy place, that was something that, as the text reminds us, only the high priest went into once a year and that without, you know, he went in with blood. All those wonderful things. And in the people, the average worshiper in, in Israel would have had to have trusted scripture and the priest to say, this is what's really behind the curtain. This is why it's behind the curtain. And so now that the curtain has been drawn away and we know from our looking, our studying and our reading in, in Hebrews is that what was in the tent and then in the temple were copies of what was in heaven. That Moses was given the directions, the dimensions. And that is why this begins with The first covenant had regulations for worship. You see, the people of Israel did not make up how we, you know, they said, oh, I think this is what we want to do. I think this is how we want to design the building. No, one of the things that we see and we wonder, why is this here? Why is the color of the draperies? Why is the rods? Why are all the gold and all the fabric and its colors Why do I care? It's because God cares about worship and God is telling the people, this is what I want you to prepare to come into my presence. 
And why is it important to come into God's presence? We go back to the problem that was created in Genesis 3 when we were pushed out of the garden. Now God is showing us a redemptive way to come into his presence. And with the tent and with the tabernacle, you do it through a representative. You do it through a priest. You do it with somebody who's from the tribe of, of, of Levi, who's from the family of Aaron. You know, these are the people that take it to go in on our behalf, on, on the behalf of the worshipers. And while I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on it today, the idea that it is God who regulates our worship tells us how he wants us to worship. I could take you to passages of scripture to justify all the things that we do. From the call to worship, to confession of our sins, assurance of pardon, the songs, the hymns, the prayers the benediction, the doxology. That is all part of the reason we come is because God has said, this is what I, how I want you to worship. And he reminds us in this passage that the first covenant, and remember from last week when he's using the idea of first covenant here, when you go back into chapter 8, the first covenant has to do with Moses, not with Abraham. What is being replaced by the second covenant is what was given to us through Moses. But he ups the ante in verse 8 when he says, by this the Holy Spirit indicates. You see, we need to be able to look at the Old Testament and the New Testament and see the author as the Holy Spirit through the different people and the different generations, the different languages that the Holy Spirit uses to give us the word of God. One of the reasons I have this fascination with Egyptian things is because it was out of Egypt that God brought his people. And the fact that we have a written text that started with Moses, and you know, you say, well, why did that happen? Fred's theory is, when you look at Egyptian history, at the time of Moses, 14, we're just going to use 1400 as the date, that is when the Egyptians started writing down the Book of the Dead, the Book of Gates. They started to make their oral traditions written. But why not use the local language? Why not use the pictographs? When I was down in Luxor on one of my military adventures, and you go into the temple and you see the pictographs all over the place, they're just using the cover. Why didn't Moses use them? Pictographs contained idolatrous images of the 473 gods of Egypt. And so they reach back into pre-Abrahamic times, bring forth an alphabet that they, they knew and they could write. I mean, I think this is one of the things about people that, in other places that can 
can read and write multiple languages. Here they are. They bring this ancient language forward to write it with an alphabet. The Holy Spirit starts having it written down. And see, when we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have to see it as one grand story written by the Holy Spirit. One of the things about St. Augustine, evidently, was that he had memorized all of the Psalms, and when people talked to him, it says he would talk in the language of the Psalms. It wasn't necessarily that he would quote them, but he would use their phrases, he would use their rhythms as he spoke. They had just saturated him. Now, we also recognize that, that we live in a search culture, whereas he lived in a memory culture. Because a lot of books were really communal books. Now, since he was the bishop, he obviously had a a library of his own, you know, things that common people wouldn't have. But yet, he demonstrated in his life a love for the Psalms and other scriptures. I'd often wonder, you know, when you think about somebody like Augustine, when you think about Christians in other places... You know, the translations go from the Greek and the Hebrew to the Latin to the Aramaic, you know, and and they move around and and they create the rhythms of the voices of the people that you're preaching to and taking and thinking about. But yet you realize that it's the Holy Spirit that's using the Word of God to change people's lives. I know that unless the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God through me to you, that your life is not going to be changed. It was one of the things about Augustine. He knew that no matter how brilliant he was in rhetoric, it was only the Holy Spirit that would change people's hearts. From the poorest person to the most educated. And I stop to say, when when we think about the poorest person, can, can, can... I want you to get, wrap your head around this idea that there literally was a line item in his budget of his church where they would go down to the slave market and buy slaves to set them free. They were so opposed to slavery that that was one of the ways they spent their tithes and offerings. Now, where they live... North coast for Africa, southern coast of the Mediterranean, that part of the world, what did they have? Surprise, economic migrants. You know, when I, was, when, I, when I read him, I realized these problems have not changed. The church needs to address them because of what the word of God says. Augustine went on a trip, and the church decided to take things into their own hands. They literally went down to a ship, broke on board, and freed a hundred slaves. They didn't pay for them. 
But the preaching was so much into their hearts that they could not stand the idea of people. They didn't know who they were. They didn't know where they were from. But through the word of God, through the Holy Spirit, they said, we got to do something. One of the things you see during his time as the Roman Empire is falling away in its influence is the diversity of people that the Christian church reached with the word of God. One of the things about this passage, when it says that gifts and sacrifice are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. You have all these things. You have the, the priest doing things every day with sacrifices. You have the priest doing things once a year with sacrifices. But yet it could not perfect the conscience of the people. See, I think that's one of the things about Jesus Christ is that when the Holy Spirit brings Christ, brings the Word of God into our lives, it can cleanse our consciousness of our sins. And I bring that up because of another point in this. When it, I'm kind of dividing it and in, in, in looking at the back end for the unintentional sins of the people. If you want to read about the unintentional sins of the people and sacrifices and all that, you go to Leviticus chapter 4. Unintentional sin was a big deal in the Old Testament. You see how individuals can make sacrifices when God reveals to them that they have sinned. Oh, I didn't know See, that's one of the prayers that we need to have is, God, help me to see my own sin, my unintentional sin. Now, this does not talk about it, and I'm just going to mention it. Intentional sin, choosing the sin, is a whole other category and a whole bunch of other sermons, not from this text. Because this reminds us of unintentional sin. I don't know how many times as a pastor when I had parents come to me because their children had stumbled into sin because mom and dad had not had the conversation. It never occurred to their sin, their child, that their child could commit this sin or that sin. But the priest that is looked at here has to pray for his own sin. And if you want to see somebody that is really held accountable, when you look at Leviticus 4 and you see when the priest commits an unintentional sin, it's because of his position that it is worse. Here's somebody that should know better, should know the word of God. But they can... Commit unintentional sin. And see, what Scripture tells us, what it reminds us in Leviticus 4 and here, is that unintentional sin is meant to be uncovered by the Holy Spirit so that the, we can confess it and be made pure from it. 
I mean, I would just challenge you. Go to Leviticus 4 and read that. The one that, that really, I think for people, for, depending upon your background, the congregation, the nation, can commit unintentional sins that need to be paid for, according to Leviticus 4. You see, I think all of that is pointing to the power of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. See, he does not have sin he has to pay for, but on the cross he pays for our sins. In my own story, I say, you know, I am glad that God did not show me all of my sins at once, or I think it would have destroyed me. But at age 70, he's continuing to show me my unintentional sins that I need to confess and bring to the blood of Christ. See, we cannot hide our spiritual lives in fear because we're afraid of what someone else might find out because we know that the Holy Spirit already knows. When I think about the big picture things that we deal with, depression, loneliness, alienation, anger. And I think a lot of that has to do because they have not accepted what Christ offers them in the gospel through his sacrifice. One of the verses that we use often in our assurance of pardon comes from 1 John 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And here is the biggest thing. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The unintentional sins I don't know about, Christ can cleanse. I can approach him as someone who is cleansed. Now, when you look at the redemptive history, when you look at this ark that has Aaron's rod that budded, that has a copy of the Ten Commandments, that has... This is something we're gonna, you know, we're gonna wonder about. And, and I, I say this seriously, but it's also to me funny that you would have manna that would not have molded, but it's there to remind us of God's faithfulness in providing for us. So that when we pray the Lord's prayer and we say, "Give us this day our daily bread," it goes back to what God did through the manna. Are we able to trust God for our provisions? I tell the story, and I probably told it here, but I'll tell it again. I remember being told about in the, in the famine, in the persecution in Uganda, of this missionary seeing a mother find a banana peel that was black and stiff. And she was going to feed her children. But she made them wait until she prayed and said, Thank you. That she could give thanks for a dried-up banana peel to feed her children. Could see the hand of God in that. 
and what many of us would throw away, but yet she would feed her hungry children. But you see, on top of the ark, where you have the mercy seat, where you have the angels with their wings, and you have this thing that is sprinkled with blood. And there's a lot of questions about that that I have that you know, aren't answered in the Bible. It's like, every year they come in and they sprinkle blood. Does some cleaning lady come in and buff it up for next year, or does it just build up? But see, the, the high priest knows, I can't go in there without blood for my own sins and the sins of my people. See, all that's gone. The mercy seat. That's why in the hymn it talks about we can come to the mercy seat, we can know our sins are forgiven, we can come into the very holy presence of God. I want us as individuals, as a congregation, to be people who are sensitive to being convicted of our sins by the Holy Spirit through Scripture, knowing that the blood of Christ is there so that we can be forgiven, we can be reconciled. See, all these things, when you look at the accessibility, well, it was always through a representative, a priest. And now we who are a kingdom of priests can go directly into the very presence of God. See, I want us to use that and think of that as a way of helping people who are lonely to know that they are never alone if they are in the presence of God. That God has created the way for them to come in. That there's no sin. How many people are shackled by the sins of their youth because they have not accepted forgiveness and their shackles are covered with shame because they don't see that they can really be forgiven. This passage says, not without taking blood. The blood for our sins is on the cross through Christ. So that we have access. We have access into the most holy place, the place of mercy, through Christ, through his word. And when we look at the old, the things that were copies of what is in heaven, where Christ did his high priestly work. When we look at all those things, those reminders of redemptive history, that all pointed us to Jesus Christ daily. I mean, there were morning and there were evening sacrifices. There were monthly sacrifices. There were yearly sacrifices. There were yearly festivals of sacrifice. All of that is summed up in what Jesus Christ did on the cross and through resurrection and ascension. Keeping the covenant, keeping the rules. And see, when we come to that place in our lives where we accept God's mercy, when we are able to accept his forgiveness and know that what he did on the cross was for us and is applied to our lives, applied to our sins, 
when we get to that place, the freedom and the peace, the peace that that gives us is just unbelievable. Two things I want you to walk away with. I want you to develop your hunger for Scripture because you know that the Holy Spirit can speak to you through the Word of God. But if you don't pick it up and read it, if you don't pray over it, if you don't memorize it, You're back to Psalm 95, verse 7. Today, if you hear the voice of the Lord, do not harden your hearts. And the second is exposing through Scripture, through the Holy Spirit, those unintentional sins that are in the lives of all of us. Because, see, it's not to beat us down, but it's to free us. Because you may not realize that unintentional sin is going to be like Marley's chain that you need to be freed from. You may have something that, that holds you back, that shames you, that wears you out, that you can be free from because he says, this was an unintentional sin that you need to be freed from. See, I can't do that for you. Only you can do that through the Holy Spirit, through Scripture, through prayer. Because all of us, in many ways, are like children who do things that are wrong that they didn't know were wrong. The young child that picks up a small piece of candy and walks out, and nobody sees him and pops it in his mouth because it's only a penny. I mean, I don't, I don't have a penny candy here. You know, the way people justify, children justify doing what they do. Saying, no, I don't have to listen. But you see, I want you to listen so those unintentional sins in your life, in my life, can be put under the blood of Christ. But then I will also continue to point you to 1 John 1, 9, where we are cleansed from all unrighteousness. My standing for God does not depend on an act of repentance. I don't have to have remembered all of my sins to be right and in the holiness of God. I don't have to. Because it's the blood of Christ that cleanses me and brings me there. Let's pray. Father, I know that when we go through redemptive history, we go through the artifacts that point to Christ. We pray, Father, that through the Word of God, we would hunger to know Him more. We would hunger to listen to the Word of God. We would be willing to have the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit expose our unintentional sins because the blood of Christ will cover them. And now, Father, as we continue to worship, we pray that we would sense the power of your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.